It's the afternoon of Monday, December 12th, and I am joined by Daniel DiMartino Booth, CEO and Chief Strategist for Quill Intelligence. Daniel, great to have you here. It is so good to be here. This is the best way I could think of to start my Fed week. Yeah, this is really like the Super Bowl for Fed week. Uh, tomorrow, we've got uh, inflation coming out early in the morning. And that's obviously extremely important in, in influencing the central bank response function. And then on Wednesday, the FOMC meeting concludes. So 2 p.m., we're going to get all of our documents, um, the statements. And then 2.30, Jay Powell is going to speak. And it's a quarter, end of quarter, so we're going to get our summary of economic projections where we get how the Fed is forecasting. Again, not a forecast, but you know how they're forecasting um, econ- economics. And, of course, the famous yep. dot plot. Uh, so, dot. Danielle, it's just it's so much going on this week. How are you thinking about this week, what will you be uh, attuned for as the week goes by? So um, I I think, I I do think that the summary of economic projections and those dots are going to be really critical. Um, You know, it's blackout until we hear Jay Powell at the podium. And that means that the only way that he has to communicate is the Wall Street Journal, Nick Temeros, which he did today. And, um, as somebody who's written a lot in my life, you always wonder what the punchline's going to be. So how somebody's going to end something. So he wrote this article about the great amount of dissent between the doves and the hawks and all the back and forth and the reasons to be dovish and the reasons to be, to be hawkish. Doesn't want to be Arthur Burns. Wants to be, you know, the, the next coming of Volker. And then Nick ended the article by quoting Randy Quarles. Now, Randy Quarles is still close to Jay Powell. Randy Quarles, you and I spoke about this months ago, quit in protest of, of the Biden administration attempting and failing to have Lael Brainerd replace Jay Powell. That, that, it was a protest quit on his part. It was like the opposite of quiet quitting. It was really noisy quitting. But he's still very close to Powell. And the fact that 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 Tim Rose chose to end his article by quoting Quarles saying people misjudge Jay being a diplomat and genuinely good guy to mean he's a conciliator, said Quarles. He'll have a very clear view and he's committed to doing what the law requires, which is bringing down inflation. If Tim Rose still has the inside track, and he chose to end it with Randy Quarles. He's trying to give you a preview of which Jay Powell we're going to see at the podium. So I don't necessarily expect him to be um, angry this time. He was pretty much angry last time and went after the reporter who, you know, how do you feel about the stock market being up before the stock market going, went, started going down? But yeah. by the same token, I do anticipate that he is going to be resolute, maybe more resolute than people or expecting, and I'm I'm basing a lot of this on the fact that it was Quarles who was quoted. Wow, that so you know Nick Timoros likes to leave uh, breadcrumbs. I pick up on the very obvious breadcrumbs. That was a breadcrumb I missed. Uh, just how important Quarles was. I'm I'm glad that you pointed that out. Uh, Nick Timoros. He also included the story about uh, Quarles and the artwork and uh, uh, Arthur Burns, which which Timoros likes repeating. He likes that, that that anecdote. Okay, so if that's an insight into Powell's framework, how he's thinking about it, if if the Fed were sort of a a, a dictatorship, 
likely we continue to be hawkish, but it is not. It's not a democracy, but it's not a dictatorship. Um, you know, there are you know multiple p- uh, people on the FOMC board, and some of them are doves, such as Lil Brainerd, as you mentioned. Mm-hmm. How might they voice their dissent? You said so. Blackout period. What is going to be in the documents that is going to be released at 2 p.m. Eastern time on Wednesday? That's already baked in the cake. That can't change. Uh, what can change is how Powell talks, how he responds to questions at the press conference, which I believe mm-hmm. is at 2.30. Uh, mm-hmm. So, yeah, what, what is your base case on how, uh, how bearish, essentially, do you think the, the Federal Reserve staff will be on the economy because you have the summaries of economic projections? And, yeah, I mean, might we see, um, you know, a dot plot below 3% for 2023? I mean, how, you know, how, how will the doves voice their discontent if, if the, mm-hmm. they want to uh, sort of... Uh, let let the chief hawk know that they're unhappy. Yeah, they um, whether or not we see a swan song descent, which we could, we could see a swan song d- descent from George or Evans. They're both leaving the Fed, the Federal Reserve System, after long careers. Um, Esther George, for a different reason, she's advocated for the pause to see how policy is disseminated. She was one of the big proponents of putting lag in the statement. Mm. You could see Evans, who did his final kind of exit interview and indicated finally that the the dove finally flew the coop because it was clear that Evans had been very scripted, very controlled. Um, So, you know, it's interesting We'll be, I'll be interested to see if he doesn't get dovish dissent at this meeting. And then you'll see the dot plot. And the dot plot, the wider the disparity of those dots, the higher the probability that into 2023, Jay Powell's going to be a man fighting dissents, as Paul Volcker successfully, by the way, did over and again. And what is the so you worked uh, at the Dallas Fed? What's the structure within the FOMC? Obviously, the person who has the most power is the the chair, and that's currently Jay Powell. But uh, can the can if can people sort of gang up on the leader, or is the power of the the hegemonic leader so dominant that uh, what what Jay Powell says goes? Okay, so he does have veto power. He does. Meaning, meaning uh, what? Yeah, yeah. Meaning he can, he can play that dictator role. Mm-hmm. He won't have to play the dictator role. And the reason he won't have to play the dictator role just yet is because he still has a very critical dove in his camp. And that's John Williams. So Lael Brainerd is vice chair of the Federal Reserve Board. John Williams is vice chair of the Federal Open Market Committee. So if Powell cannot run a meeting, gets the flu, it's John Williams running that meeting. John Williams is traditionally came from the San Francisco Fed. He bragged about not having a Bloomberg terminal on his mm-hmm. desk. When he got to him running the markets, you know, this, this is the markets desk here, people. You should have a Bloomberg on your... Anyways, he's being loyal to Powell, which I find to be so intriguing. So intriguing, because if he and Brainerd were to team up against Powell, to your point, things could get really interesting. The heat would really be on. But in his most recent public remarks, and I will say that that Williams has been a little quieter lately than he's normally. 
But in his most recent market comments, Williams has stood firmly next to his Powell. He's been a, he's been a committed lieutenant to the general. And that's a big deal going into 2023 because you're not going to have you're, you're, you're going to rotate in more doves to vote in 2023 and rotate hawks off of the every three-year vote. So it, it, it and, and you know that, 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 um, that Evan's replacement in Chicago is going to, he tends to lean uh, dovish, Goolsby, Austin Goolsby, his, his replacement. Mm-hmm. And, and, and the unique structure is such that in, the, in 1913, the economies of Cleveland and Chicago were viewed as being so critical that they were right there next to New York. So those two feds continue to have an every other year voting rotation, which is a reflection of what the economy was in 1913, not today. doesn't matter because mm-hmm. they still have the they still have a higher degree of power because they're every other year on a voting rotation as opposed to the other nine districts where it's every third year. Mm. So your power it's, is it's a throwback to when those, those cities were when, dominant. To what the map of to what the economic map of the United States was at the time when Cleveland and Chicago were these massive transportation hubs, railroads. So, um, so that's that's that, that's a vestige of 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 a different era. It doesn't matter. But so Goolsby will likely be very dovish. Okay. In. And, and so in, in the September dot plot, uh, the highest uh, projections for twenty twenty three was uh, 475 to 5%, so basically 5%. And I think there were uh, five or six of them. I can't see exactly how many dots. Um, what is the highest point that you think uh, will be there uh, in the December projections, keeping in mind that Powell has been saying uh, that in the subsequent meetings that uh, we may have to uh, move to higher levels than we thought at the time of the September meeting, i.e. the September dot plot. So. Do you, oh, I, I bet probably we'll get some above 5%. Do you think we'll get some at, in the 5.5% or, or maybe even higher? And um, yeah, and then I got a follow-up question about I how mean, low do you think it'll be? It, it's, it, it's conceivable that we get a 5.5, but at the end of the day, we know that core PCE came in at 5%. So there's not that much actual kind of macroeconomic justification for going that much higher. Doesn't matter. If you do get even just a five and a quarter, the implication is that you are raising February 1st, March, and June. And then it'll be more interesting to see where they see that rate staying. In other words, Mm -hmm. will you see the doves start to factor in through the dot plot rate cuts? And then stubbornness on the part of the Hawks who want to keep it up there. Okay, very interesting. Uh, follow-up question is, I'm just noticing now, in the September uh, dot plot, there was one dot that in 2025 had rates still uh, at 4.75%. So that's way more hawkish than every other FOMC member. Who do you think that is? Bullard. Bull- Bullard is the most hawkish. I mean... Um... I think he's the most outwardly hawkish. Mm. People forget that Bullard used to be a tough. 
Yeah. Not that long ago. Um, but, uh, I mean, if you want to go in the order, you would go Bullard, Wallard, Powell. Mm-hmm. Or maybe Bullard, Powell. Well, Powell and Wall- Waller, I see as being mano a mano. That is, I, I tweeted it out over the weekend. I-, I think that Waller is his closest confidant. And he would be. Even if Bullard has Powell's ear, he rotates off of voting next year. This mm. is Powell, This is Bullard's last vote. Uh, I mean, it's the last dot plot, but this is Bullard's last vote for another three years. Waller, sitting member of the Federal Reserve Board, has a permanent vote. Mm. As does John Williams in his capacity as president of the New York Fed, the only district bank president with permanent voting authority. That's a great point. Uh, I, f- I forgot about Bullard, and I'm now remembering that he had some presentation a month or so ago that took into account the Taylor rule, which basically means you know it should be, the interest rate should be a factor of an inflation, mm-hmm. and that leading rates to be as high as six or even seven percent. So yeah, he he is the most hawkish. It's that's wild. He's the most outwardly hawkish. Yeah, but to your point, my mentor Lacey Hunt will tell you that's never been done. Keeping rates that high for that long in the history of the Federal Reserve System has never been done. Not even Volcker? Not even Volcker. Wow. Not, because not inflation was so high. Them at the highest, at, at that high level. And you can mm-hmm. think of, you know, 2025, 4.75%. That's like the equivalent of 15% way back when. And uh, I mean, I, I can't begin to fathom the, the magnitude of the financial crisis that would trigger. Yeah. Um, Screw recession. That, that's, that's like an afterthought. Yeah. And Danielle, what do you think about the idea that if the Federal Reserve is going to pivot, they're never going to tell us, right? Because if they told us openly, then financial conditions would ease before the pivot actually happened. They want the optionality of being able to, to hold monetary policy tight and then being able to pull that lever of, of lucid monetary policy. So, that, you know, that uh, Nick Timrose article that indicated that a 50 basis point hike is likely uh, in this with this week's meeting, uh, which which it seems like it is likely, which will take rates to a, a high of 4.25%. Um, do you think do you think after that we'll get another 50? Do you think we'll get a 25? Because you know, if they're really trying to slow down this train, it would be 50 in December, a 25 in uh, February or late January, and uh, to, to reach a high of 4.5%. And they could do another one after that, which would be a high of 4.75%. But uh, that, that mm-hmm. seems like the, the most dovish options, right? Because you can't go from 50 to not hiking. No, Maybe I don't you think can. you can. Uh, yeah. uh... It's a bad look. It's a bad look. I, I don't think you can. And um, you know, furthermore, we don't know how sticky housing's going to be in that data. We just don't know. Mm-hmm. You know, um, Brookings, Brookings Institution came out with a, with a paper and mm. basically suggesting the, the shelter input, which is roughly a third of the CPI, you know, could top out around 7%. Headed into 2023, that's a big number. And winter's coming. Winter's yeah. not here yet. But, you know, if we were to get another ratcheting up potentially in, um, in, in oil prices, it, it's interesting. The New York Feds uh, does the survey and they, they come up with inflation expectations and what have you. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, people's expectations for food inflation remain extremely high. 
hell, they expect rent to be up 9.8%. That's a big number. So even though there's been relief at the, at the gas pump, and we've mm-hmm. seen that visibly in University of Michigan data, inflation expectations coming down, it's the most visible form of inflation, blah, 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 blah everything they ever taught me at the Fed and more. Um, even though we've seen that, you have not seen, I, I can't talk to a regular person at the egg counter in the mm-hmm. grocery store without having somebody say to me, how on earth are these eggs so expensive? And, and so it's it's still very, very much visible. And so there is, I think, I, I don't think you can discount 50 on February 1st. It's so weird to say February 1st. They always have that meeting the very last few days of January. Yeah. Just have the calendars falling this year, but it's, you could potentially see 50. It will be interesting to see whether or not Powell lays that egg. <laughs> nice. I see what you did there. Yeah. We haven't really gotten for true forward guidance, name of the podcast, in a while. You know, we're using a lot of soft language like mm-hmm. softish. You know, ah. Yeah. When a journalist asks on Wednesday, and he, uh, Powell will be asked by a journalist, what are you thinking about for? for uh february the to be completely open and honest and say oh it's gonna be 50 oh it's gonna be 25 that's extremely unlikely what do you think powell's answer is going to be i think he's gonna say it depends on how the data come in between now and then Mm -hmm. and leave him hanging I, i i agree with you jack that he is trying to preserve as much optionality as humanly possible and that is his goal uh the one thing that might catch up with him is the labor market hmm so that's your, to me at least, that's your big unknown. Yeah. So during uh, the press conference, Powell talks a lot about the labor market, and he looks at unemployment rate, job openings, as well as jobs, jobs added, jobs lost. You follow that data very, very closely. I'm a little bit out of the loop. What has been going on? I know the headline unemployment number, which you know, someone, if, if someone's going to look at, into the labor market, that's probably the first thing they're going to look. But there's so much more underneath. The the, the headline unemployment rate is still quite low, right? 3.7%, mm-hmm. maybe a bit higher. Uh, but there's a lot of, of, of uncertain data like roiling underneath that may pretend that the unemployment rate may be higher. So what are you seeing in the labor market and, and how bad is it? So um, it's getting bad quicker than I had anticipated. That's saying something. And it's funny because the media is trying so hard to hold this line. So hard. It's bizarre. You know, we, we, we've written about, about it extensively at, at Quill. The jobless claims data has just turned. Jobless claims were up nationwide 48.9% in the week ended September the 24th. Excuse me, down 48.9%, which is great. That was the best number that we've seen in this cycle. Last week, they flipped. They're positive for the first time since the economy reopened, year over year. Initial jobless claims are positive in 24 states, representing 51% of the U.S. population. Six other states are on the verge of flipping to positivity, which means by January 1, we're going to have 74% of states with rising jobless claims as represented by the population of the United States. Dailyjobcuts.com. I follow their data religiously. In the month of November, there were 131 closings, locations, businesses that closed through the first 12 days of December, we've had 89 close. So small businesses are just, they're like, the tax year's up. The gig is up. I'm not paying my CPA for 2023. I can see the writing on the wall. 
I've, I've gotten my business income tax refund, which by the way has been $135 billion in a 10 month period, a massive form of stimulus uh, that's been injected into the economy. It's one of the reasons that travel's been as Mm. as robust as it has. But small businesses are, thro are throwing in the towel and closing up shop. At a, at, at, I was speaking to the person who tracks the data at dailyjobcuts.com. His comment to me, we haven't seen anything like this since 2009. Wow. So it's it, it, if, if anything slows him down, it's going to be the, the actual recession and how quickly mm. the job market's turning. And I know the, the jobs opening and labor turnover survey, Jolts, still has it as of October, so very late data, uh, 10 million, 10.3 million job openings. So you could say, oh, my God, there's still so much slack in the labor market. It's such a, you know, it's it's a employee employees market, not an employer's market. Um, how many of those job uh, openings are legit? Um and d does that say what they might say? And, and, and uh, yeah, so is it is the number? Does the number suggest that there is a lot of slack to you? Does Jay Powell think so? And why might he be wrong? So Jay Powell knows that the data is bullshit. Um, uh, research by the Federal Reserve, <laughs> fresh research by the Federal Reserve, shows that if you extract from the data job postings that are put out there for the purpose of poaching. That's the word that these researchers used, poaching. In other words, job postings that are specifically and only for employed individuals, which just means you're just shifting humanity from one position to another, which is why you're seeing wage inflation for job switchers be so high. If you net out job postings that are specifically written to poach your competitors' employees, job openings are flat as a pancake. Fed research, Fed research. Mm -hmm. If you follow, used to be referred to as Burning Glass. Now the company has been renamed Lightcast. Burning mm -hmm. Glass, yeah, Lightcast. OpportunityInsights.com. They post every single week. Actually, they've gone down to every two weeks, but they post real-time job postings. What have been the hardest jobs to secure in the current environment? Those that are for the least skilled workers, right? Can't get busboys, can't get home health workers, can't get people to work fast food change. Chipotle's paying $20 an hour. The world is ending as we know it. Well, those job postings were up 90, 99% at their peak in 2022. As of November the 19th, those job postings are up 9%. Mm. They've crashed for minimum education required, the least skilled positions. If those positions have been largely filled and those are for the unemployed people, truly unemployed as opposed to trying to get, you know, right. my, my, my closest competitor software engineer. If those, if those job listings have, have dried up, that's one of the reasons at Quill we think that this job turning so this job is just turning so fast. What you're saying is that it portends very poorly for the labor market, but how quickly will we see this? Not only how quickly will it get bad in real life, but how quickly can people see it, you know, on on the paper in terms of an unemployment rate? The unemployment rate is still 3.7%, which is historically mm -hmm. a low. If all the Fed hikes are priced in to happen, you know, by July of next year, if, if the unemployment rate is only 3.9%, I mean, that, that gives the Hawks a lot of, of ammo. So how quickly do you think that will go into the, the most important data? Uh, you know, uh, unemployment rates, jobs added, jolts. 
So, I mean, you know, at, at the risk of quoting the National Enquirer of Finance, um, you know, um, Zero Hedge came out after this last report and they're like, which report's telling the truth here? Because one says that we've created 2.7 million jobs since March when the Fed first started hiking. And one says unch, unchanged, mm. different between the establishment and the household surveys. Um, we've never had this big of a divide between the two surveys suggesting that something's going to give, um, that the gap is going to close. And, and the gap closing is going to mean, I mean, you know, when you've got sell-side firms coming out and saying, you know, we expect for there to be 2 million job losses in 2023 from a sell-side investment bank that's paid to keep people long only in stocks, you know something's wrong. So I, I do think that there's an unemployment rate shock. You're right that it comes up with a massive lag and, and Jay Powell's going to hide behind any and all data he can to justify his path. He's going to hide behind it. Even if he knows it's false, I keep telling people this, it won't matter. He just needs it to reference. Mm -hmm. And how much do you think Jay Powell's speech and answers to reporters will depend upon tomorrow's inflation reading as, as well as, you know, where the, the forecast median forecast is, I think 0.3% month over month for headline and, uh, seven point three percent year year over year for headline as well. So headlines mm -hmm. including um, energy and food for for our, for our listeners. And of course, energy prices have collapsed over the past uh, two months. So it's kind of been per like perfect for uh, inflation to fall. But as you mentioned, that rents and shelter CPI extremely sticky. Um, yeah. So so what is your outlook for what will happen tomorrow? You know, given of course that no one knows. And uh, how how much do you think it will factor Jay Powell's uh, press conference? So you could certainly see that headline come down hard because of energy prices, as you mentioned. Um, I, I think that I think that Nick spoke to Powell. I think Timur spoke to Powell with when Powell had the CPI data in hand, and still chose to end the article quoting quarrels. I mean, P Powell can say one month does not a trend make. The situation in the Ukraine is very fluid. Uh, you know, we really haven't had winter. Except, you know, when he's at the podium, the country's going to be getting shellacked with multiple feet of snow. Mm -hmm. um, irony there. He, he, can, um, he can fade the data. And he can also say, you know, let's just, let's just say that the core comes down to 4%. If he does not follow his European Central Bank peers, and lately he's been going his own way. If he does not follow the doves on the ECB and, and, and put it out there, you know, we might consider mm -hmm. raising our inflation target to 3%. Maybe. If he stays on that 2% line and, and has that be a red line, even if the core comes down to 4%, he can still say that's double our target. We got to keep going. Right. Hey, you know, I, I feel like people I talk to who you know, know the Fed well, yourself included, the, the odds that the Federal Reserve may secretly accept 2.5% or 3% inflation, uh, that is a possibility. But the odds that they would openly say that they'd accept 3% inflation and that they'd deviate from their 2% inflation, that, isn't that an extremely remote and unlikely possibility? I think it's more remote than it's ever been, <clears throat> excuse me, because average inflation targeting has been such an unmitigated disaster. <laughs> yeah. So, um, 
And, and, and that's why, you know, the mantra, until the job is done, until the job is done, until the job is done is interpreted as 2%, 2% or 2%. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Daniel, I know, um, Artificial intelligence, AI, is uh, a lot of people, it's quite hot right now, a lot of people focusing on that. If you and I were to build a program uh, and we gave the, our, our um, you know, algorithm the data of this past year of if there's a Fed meeting, what happens and how does the market respond? It would be Jay Powell is very hawkish, much more hawkish than expectations, and uh, interest rates go up uh, and risk assets crash. Uh, so w- if we were to build that ag- algorithm, do you, Danielle, you know, with not only the, the knowledge, but also the human insight, would you agree with our algorithm, uh, given that, you know, you, you, uh, you got, you got a trend follow and that's what happens will happen at pretty much every other sure. Fed meeting this, this year. Yeah, no, I mean the, the lack of, of tightening of financial conditions, I think nobody saw coming, um, not given the magnitude of the Fed's hikes and how rapid, rapidly they've taken rates up 75, 75, 75, 75. So, uh, you know, it's, I think, I think that the outcome of this year would, would fool the best AI given, given stocks are at every turn stocks celebrate a perceived pivot. Yes, that's true. That's true. I mean, that keeps the Fed more, that keeps Jay Powell more resolute. Stocks right now with the S and P pretty close to four thousand, uh, very close to w- where it was in September, higher than it was in November when when Jay Powell just went off uh, on the reporters. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it'll 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 be an interesting time. Right now, Danielle, the the terminal rate, how high the market thinks the Federal Reserve will get to at its peak, is exactly five point zero zero percent. Do you think that will go higher or lower based on the meeting, and why? Again, if, if it's Make My Day Jay, the sequel, you know, it, it could certainly bump up. Um, I, I think the greater risk, Jack, is that it stays there after the meeting, after the press conference, that it doesn't come down. Hmm. Because that means that the pivot that is currently being celebrated is going to have been denied. So I, I think the greater risk is that it stays steady and doesn't go down. The terminal rate goes up, but then doesn't go down, or it doesn't go down. No, no, no. It stays just, at five percent. Just, just that it holds that five point oh oh percent. I mean, oh, that right. implies tightening into summer through the spring. And by the way, nobody's talking about quantitative tightening. Yeah, I, I, I yeah, cite yeah, my yeah. mentor one more time. I'd Lacey Hunt. He follows other deposits liabilities every single week. The Fed releases at four fifteen p.m. Eastern Standard. The H eight. And that line has been negative year over year for six weeks running. The Fed is only $15 billion shy of its current treasury roll-off target based on what they originally mapped out. Quantitative tightening is happening. Right. And you're seeing it in an absolute seizing up of securitization markets. Mm-hmm. But it hasn't liquidly been surprisingly resilient over the past month or two. And does that mm-hmm. have something to do with the Treasury general account of the Treasury just releasing a lot of money? Like, hasn't basically the, the tightening of QT been sterilized, if you will, to use a word that's not quite appropriate, by the release of reserves from the Treasury? Certainly it has been. And, and we're seeing that because the only dislocations that we're seeing in the market 
that are attributable to liquidity are at the outer edges, which is why I bring up something like a securitization market, a CNBS market that is mm-hmm. absolutely frozen solid. Um, but in other areas, investment grade bond issuance, even high yield bond issuance, I mean, the yields are really high. It's finally a high yield market, but there's still activity out there. You still yeah. see an M&A announcement, yeah. which is indicative of liquidity. So yeah, there is... There is more, and again, the $135 billion that have been injected into the economy in the last 10 10, 10 months via business income tax refunds, it's a real number. And it's also been flooding the system with liquidity. Mm. Daniel, I'd love for you to square or help explain two data points that to me give the exact opposite message. Uh, One is the amount of money in customer balances at bank accounts. And the, the chart that stands out to me is, is from the Bank of America's uh, one where basically, you know, if you have five to $10,000 in your, in your bank account, uh, your, your amount of money that you had relative to 2019 or something like that is up something like 100% or 150% year over year. So you know, we all f- are familiar of this narrative. The customers and consumers are flush with cash balances. Mm-hmm. However, mm-hmm. Uh, customers are also y- using their credit cards uh, a a very large amount. So if people have all this money, how come they're using their credit cards so much? How come they're not paying things with that with money they actually have? Well, uh, that's because the excess savings is concentrated in the hands of the oldest and wealthiest, mm-hmm. and and because Brian Moynihan, we finally found out, is actually in the running for Treasury Secretary, which would explain why he's denying his own data. Which shows, by the way, which shows his his proprietary credit and debit data show that there is a definite deceleration in spending. That's B of A's internal data. So um, whatever it was that we've been enjoying, it ain't going to be there in 2023. And we've got this debt ceiling thing. It's it's kabuki theater. I understand, blah, blah, blah. But last I checked, Kristen Sinema just left the Democratic Party. Sometimes Manchin joins her. Sometimes John Tester joins her. I put this out in our Bloomberg chat room a few days ago. I'm like, uh, you get three people voting with the conservatives, the fiscally conservatives. You negate the Kamala Harris vote factor. Mm-hmm. She, she's no longer the, the, the tie-breaking vote. And it, it, it's conceivable. And do you realize how powerful that is going into a year in which the Republicans control the House of Representatives? So you could have some very ugly things coming out of this next Congress that affect the economy that nobody wants to talk about. Mm. Um, and by yeah, the way, they all like they all like J-Pal. <laughs> 80 votes in the Senate. Uh, do you think that... Do you think that QT will be mentioned at all at this press conference? And if so, what do you think will be relevant? What should we be paying attention to? Because it's kind of on autopilot, to use the word. that It uh, is on autopilot, and it's extremely critical because I'm going back to your 4.75% in 2025 dot. That implies that in 2025, we're still doing QT. Right. I mean, that's, that's, it won't matter if we get three QT fuzzy, warm, 25 basis point rate hikes in 2023. That's going to be irrelevant in terms of the tightening versus continued QT and QT that keeps going after. So 
It is highly appropriate and long past time. I told you that the Fed's only $15 billion behind with their treasuries. They're way behind with their MBS purchases of $35 billion a month. Way, 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 way behind. It is time for a reporter to ask him, are you going to do what you said you were going to do in May? Which mm -hmm. is, if I can't get enough mortgage-backed securities to roll off the balance sheet, I'm going to top off my treasury roll-off and increase that. So it's long, long, long since past time. It's as if the reporters have been gagged, which happens. There are certain yeah. things. It's like, oh, Voldemort can't mention it. Oh, sorry. I think there was a maybe in the September meeting, some reporter asked him about sales, and he said no. So I think the the unspoken thing is maybe that they they won't do sales. They're not going to do sales. Yeah, yeah. That's not the point. I mean, your point is they should get it, pin him down, pin him down, and say, yeah, that's not the point. The, 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 the question is, is he going to roll off more treasuries? All you want to know about is aggregate, aggregate tightening, not mm -hmm. whether Elizabeth Warren's going to get pissed off because the Fed's selling securities and, and booking losses that are, you know, as far as the accounting rules goes, irrelevant. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it's, it's sexy to talk about. I know, Jack. Woo. But no, they're not going to sell. But that's not the point. Again, are you going to ramp up to that true $95 billion per month run rate? Because right now it looks like you're just doing 60. Mm. If you were a reporter, uh, in the press conference, what question would you ask Jay Powell? Other I than the mortgage-backed security. Other than the mortgage-backed securities question. Um, I would be interested to know from him um, where he feels um, the labor market is, is truly headed. I would ask him about that JOLTS data. Mm -hmm. That's what I would ask him. I would ask him about the JOLTS data because and, and, and by the way, I would quote from the St. Louis Fed paper <laughs> mm -hmm. about the JOLTS data. And I, I, would, I would really press him on that because nobody, nobody does. He, he, he talks about it, but it's just, it's, it's just talk. That's all it is. And nobody calls him out. Hmm. Uh, Danielle, in terms of your hard commitments, oh, we're going to do 50, we're going to do 25, likely going to be a much less... Um, uh, clear and delineated, but in terms of verbiage, you know, Jay Powell has used words like pain, um, uh, soft-ish landing. Uh, I don't know if he's used the term hard landing. Um, you're saying that unemployment could go up. Um, how basically doom and gloom do you think the Jay Powell uh, in two days w w is going to be? So I think that he knows that he freaked out the markets last time he was at the podium. I don't know that he cares, but he was certainly a kinder, gentler Jay Powell when David Wessel was interviewing mm -hmm. him, um, you know, with kid gloves. But um, it, it might have also been, you know, two uptight white guys sitting on a stage just having a chit chat. So um, as, as opposed to a young reporter getting under his skin. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't think he's going to be the angry Jay Powell, but all he has to be is resolute. Mm -hmm. That's all he has to be. He just has to be consistent. And if he's consistent in his messaging that he was from the get-go when he basically blew off all, you know, before he got angry at that last press conference, he'd already blown off the idea of lag. So he'd already, you know, kicked the dubs in the corner before he even crossed that line and got angry. And that alone was enough to upset the markets. Mm -hmm. because the markets had initially celebrated that they had put the word lag in there to placate the doves. And yeah, Jay Powell, just, he swatted it away. He dismissed it. 
And that's why risk assets had a roller coaster first when they they, they loved the word lag, uh, but then mm-hmm. they did not like what was to follow. Uh, mm-hmm. Do you think Jay Powell will reference monetary conditions and say that they are too loose uh, in order to tame inflation and we will, the Federal Reserve intends, I don't know how they'll hedge it, intends to tighten policy or raise rates until, you know, monetary conditions are tighter, i.e. S&P 500, not at 4,000, which is where it currently is. Yeah, um, it, it's uh, he tries he, he he tends to try and, and and steer clear. He has in his career tried to steer clear of the financial conditions um, discussion. So it will be really interesting if he nods to financial conditions um, because they're definitely looser than he would want for them to be. And if that's something that's fueling inflation then that's, again, it's a subject that he could raise and raise it nice and quietly without getting angry and still really upset the markets. Mm, Thanks. Uh, Danielle, the last time you came here, you talked about the weakness in the car market as well as the housing market. That was uh, roughly a month and a half ago. Mm -hmm. How much worse has it gotten Mm -hmm. since then? It's getting pretty ugly out there. Um, you know, Redfin announced uh, just a few days ago that the percentage of homes listed is 15% year over year, the highest number in, on record. Um, so things are moving. Things are not moving at the same time that things are moving very fast. In other words, um, sellers are refusing to sell. But now I think sellers are actually getting afraid. Because nobody wants a comp. Nobody mm-hmm. wants the comparable. Nobody wants a price stamp on anything. So, um, but what do you mean by that? Sorry, what do you, what do you mean by that? Uh, I, I think that sellers don't want for their neighbor down the street to sell their mm. house. They're yeah, afraid yeah. of what that's going to look like. Because once, once the recognition is out there, you're in the soup from the position of, of a seller. And selling conditions, as reported by the University of Michigan survey, they've come down a lot, but they haven't come down to where they typically are when you would say that there's been capitulation in the housing market. I dare say that when you see an announcement by Lennar that it's been quietly shopping 5,000 homes and hoping to sell them in bulk to investors, that things are getting bad. And, you know, the layoffs in the industry have, have yet to abate. Mm-hmm. When you see things like, you know, a, a, a furniture manufacturer close in Mississippi. It's been open for a really long time. When, when you see Restoration Hardware CEO, don't get me wrong, the guy's, the guy's a pistol. He's a pioneer. He's always saying things that his peers were like, just be quiet. But when he says housing's in a free fall, and by the way, luxury is going to get hit harder. And the reason this is so important, Jack, is because the reversal of the wealth effect is a very real phenomenon, mm-hmm. and it truly affects spending in America more than credit card spending. If the high-end consumer pulls back, it's, it's game over for, for the economy because the, the top 20% account for like 50% of spending or something enormous like that. So if, if, if the, the reversal of the wealth effect through the housing channel and in, in the latest flow of funds data that we got from the Federal Reserve uh, in, in the third quarter, residential real estate values were still increasing. They still increased over the quarter by almost a, a billion. Um, How is that possible? 
because you're looking at you're look you're we've never seen this quick of a reversal in home price appreciation ever ever mm-hmm. the case shiller home price index was up 17% year over year three reports ago it's negative year over year right now mm-hmm. and it comes out with a tremendous lag but this was data through october that would have reflected October and September and August when home prices were still going up. So that's ah, why in the floor yeah. funds, you saw it still rising through the, through, you know, through the end of the quarter, through the end of, sorry, through September the 30th, the end of the third quarter. Yeah, that so makes sense. That- so, so it, 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 the data lagged and it's gotten bad so quickly that even three months ago, it was still looking pretty good, but, but now it's, it's gotten bad. Yeah. I remember restoration, uh, hardware CEO, uh, press key at a press conference in 2021 where he's saying business is great and we're able to pass costs on to consumers and i doubted him at that point but uh, he ended up tr- being right and you know now he's saying something that you know if it's true is, is harming his business given that he's you know catering to to, to luxury consumers yeah. um i mean after the for a second quarter earnings report he said anybody who didn't think that the united states economy was in recession was crazy mm-hmm. quote unquote Right. Uh, okay. So now, yeah. What what have you made of the headline economic growth? Because I believe the you know, we, in terms of real quarter over quarter growth, we had two negative prints, which is kind of like the unofficial definition of a recession. However, the most recent quarter for GDP, we had a positive uh, real GDP growth. Two point nine percent. So the two point nine percent year year over year, um, quarter over quarter, real GDP is seventy basis points, which is a very weird way to report it but when people talk about um the, the bea they always they always do a quarter over quarter which is not h- helpful um particularly yep. when you have huge base effects but yeah so we had we had to have a quarter of real gdp growth uh does that undermine the case that we're in a recession i mean is it typical for a recession to start and then for re- for growth to actually sort of spurt up during a recession very highly okay and in fact uh, we're running the data this week in particular because it's very back of the envelope and it's not precise, but we're billions away from GDP growth being negative for the entire year 2022. Billions in a $23 trillion economy. If you will, when you add up the three quarters, again, this is not precise math, it's not exactly right, but when you add up the three quarters, you get to a positive 0.7% headed into the fourth quarter. I mean, I'm going to go back to Mr. Moynihan. Bank of America sees core retail sales for the month of November, which feeds GDP math being negative. All we need to do is have enough negative data in the months reported for the months of November and December to flip that 0.7% from being positive to negative, which flips the whole year. I mean, Q3 was a reflection of the fact that Europe's buying a hell of a lot of natural gas from the United States. No kidding. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, was, it was a huge export report. So I get that. But there's, I don't know, Jack, there's, there's, there's something to be said for how the National Bureau of Economic Research scores recessions and why they've been so silent. They've been so silent because History dictates that you often in recession have a bump up for one quarter mm-hmm. and then you turn negative again in the subsequent quarter. And they only grade 
Recessions based on the level of inflation-adjusted GDP. Level. Level. So they will look and see what GDP was on December the 31st, 2021, and they will look and see what GDP was on December the 31st, 2022. And at this juncture, we haven't heard anything from the NBER because it's, it's just a matter of a billion billions of dollars. Mm. I know nobody wants to talk about this stuff. Yeah, well, we do. That's why I'm, I'm glad you're here. Danielle, uh, what about spending? Spending is, you know, is the, so much of the U.S. economy. Uh, what are you seeing in consumer spending, particularly as we approach the fourth quarter, which is typically you know, a boom time for, for retail? I know you, in Quill Intelligence, you had a fantastic chart about Black Friday sales that uh, I found extremely interesting. That was Bank of America data that showed you that spending on holiday goods, it's like nobody's decking these halls. Spending on holiday goods is, was down huge. Black Friday and, um, and and Cyber Monday, those those weeks that encompassed Thanksgiving and the following week. So even just spending in general was down year over year um, when you combine those two weeks, according to Bank of America. And 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 they also that that same particular feather. I also showed this massive backlash effect because in November we didn't get we didn't get this massive stimmy check out of the state of California, mm -hmm. which is 15% of consumption. Oh, I saw that chart. I didn't get why. Yeah, that, that, that chart yeah. showing just consumer spending just in, California. In, in California month over month it was down a huge amount. And I didn't, I didn't know why. You're saying it's because there was no stimulus check. Yeah, yeah they sent out $1,000, give or take, to like 22 million Californians in the month of yeah. October. And that just, boom, went straight through uh, to retail sales. Th I mean, that's, that's not where we are. Look, Cox Automotive, who tries to control the narrative, you know, their dealer survey that was published last week, the dealers are like, we've never seen it this bad. And, yeah. you know, a year ago, I was telling people that we were going to, that, that, that autos were going to be in the soup. And they're like, you are insane. There is so much pent-up demand out there, Danielle. Not according to the dealers. There was pent up demand. It it there it, it, it pented. <laughs> it pented. It's been yeah. exhausted. Um. It, yeah. You know. Daniel, pent, after we did, gone, ooh, we've gone from pent to spent. Yeah. 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 There we go. The interview that we did a month and a half ago, you really opened my mind to the car market. So I, I did some follow-up you know, research just by myself. And so many of the automotive companies, particularly the rental companies, most of their profit was just their inventories going up and the marking, oh, a $30,000 car is now a $40,000 car. And now that clock is winding back in reverse. And um, yeah, it's interesting to see some of the stocks that ha officially have a price-to-earnings ratio of three. Uh, they may be, you know, <laughs> may be a negative price-to-earnings ratio soon. Who knows? Um, what was going to ask? Well, okay, I Danielle. mean, judging by Carvana. Yeah. Oh man, that's that. That's a so that's a big problem. Um, D Danielle. Uh, uh, so there's the one hope. So a lot of a lot of not a lot to be excited about. To put it mildly, in housing, in cars, in consumer spending, the one maybe uh, ray of sunshine on a, a gloomy day would be this services. The services economy. Uh, you know, people are flying almost as much as they did in 2019. People are going to hotels. People are going on vacation. The services PMI is still growing, you know, I mean, above 50, uh, not in recession yet. And services is, a, you know, much bigger than goods. Uh, 
how do you ex- explain the sort of resilience of s- services and how quickly do you think it deteriorates? Can services save us? It's $135 billion in business income tax refunds, Jack, that's being spent. Mm-hmm. So if you look at cities' weekly data on lodging, um, since 2019, the best performing hotel sector has been economy. That's now turned negative year over year. Again, since 2019, economy was the best performing sector. That's all these stimulus checks that were sent out and all of America hitting the road and staying at Holiday Inn Expresses. That's the economy level. What hotel sector has done the absolute best in this year in which we find ourselves giving small and medium businesses $135 billion? Luxury. Mm -hmm. Luxury and not luxury business, luxury leisure let me give you a few examples, Jack, because this is now, I'm, I'm going to plant the next seed. You're not going to be able to sleep. You're going to be blinking, thinking about it in the middle of the night. You're going to be damn that, Danielle. Owner of a convenience store mm-hmm. got back $110,000 income tax refund, $26,000 per employee payroll tax. Turn up your Bloomberg radio next time you're driving around. You'll hear getrefunds.com. There's a massive cottage industry that is telling people this is free money. There is, this was in our Bloomberg chat room, auto dealer who had 100 employees, $2.2 million refund. And finally, da, da, da. Also in our Bloomberg chat room, there is a company that private equity just bought out. And they say that over the next six months, they will be paid out a seven-figure business income tax refund. Seven figures. And this is a program that technically ended October the... October of 2022, but this is just backup. This is just people who are literally being sold. I'll do this for you on a contingency basis. I will file your taxes for you up to $26,000 per employee. That's why you've seen airplanes full and leisure luxury hotels full, but it ain't coming in 2023. Yeah. Gravy trains pulling out of the station with a GOP led house of representatives. Yes, I uh, have gone on a few business trips and I've had the observation that I'm one of the few on an actual business trip. Most people are going on vacation because companies typically don't send people anymore because, you know, everything's on Zoom or or even though that's, uh, yeah, exactly. Um, And a lot of that discretionary leisure spending. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people in first class, I mean, that just makes no sense. First class is, is, in my opinion, you know, it's never worth it. Uh, And to some people who thought they could afford it, you know, they might not be flying at all, or if so, they'll be doing economy. And for airlines, so much of their profit is in first class. Jack, I've never seen so many children in first class. <laughs> I know, I know. But that's, that, but again, I'm the owner of a car dealership. I just got a $2.2 million income tax refund, and my wife knows it. Yeah. We're, we're not going on vacation. We're going on a nice vacation, and we're all sitting in the front of the bus. Yeah, yeah. But, and, but the uh, money's being spent is my point. The money's being spent. It's slowly and, being drained. Yeah. And, I, I mean, you know, the most, the, Danielle, what was the most critical data point to come out in the last week or even since we've last spoke, spoken? The University of Michigan queries twice a month percentage of people who think the unemployment rate is going to rise. 
it hit 45% in early December. The last time we had this number rise like this was December 2007. Wow. When it hit 47%. Once people on Main Street get the message that layoffs are not just a Silicon Valley quiet quitting phenomenon, whatever it is, whatever it is that the media is trying to tell you that it is. Once there's a recognition on Main Street that layoffs are coming. And by the way, we were over 50% of the highest income earners anticipating a rising unemployment rate. Those are the people who hire and fire people. Now, the rest of the working population has gotten the message. Wow. I got two, two final questions for you. Uh, the first is, have you noticed a narrative shift in the public statements of bank CEOs, such as David Solomon of Goldman Sachs, Jamie Dimon of, of JP Morgan, Brian Moynihan, Bank of America? Up until recently, they were it sounded like the base case was for a soft landing. But you know, I listened to a talk uh, with uh, David Solomon and he said soft landing only at, he, his probability of a soft landing is only at 35%. He thinks, uh, you know, but basically he's all but saying that we're, we're having a recession. Uh, you know, when bank, when bank CEOs say that everything's rosy, it's often wise to, to doubt them and, and be skeptical. But when bank CEOs say that there's a recession coming in all but name, I, I take them pretty seriously. And do, do you have any thoughts on that, that narrative shift? No, I mean, I, I, over the weekend, I tweeted, I tweeted it out. Now it makes sense. And it was a story that was leaked that Brian Moynihan was in the running potentially to be Treasury Secretary. Mm. And that's all I put. Now it makes sense. Because he was the outlier. He was the only bank CEO holding out and saying that the labor market is strong and that the U.S. economy can have a soft landing and that he's not seeing he, that the consumer is strong. He was, but he was the holdout. He was the sole holdout. And you want to know why it's so important? And I, I know you know why. But when a bank CEO says we're going into recession, that means that they're loan loss. They're seeing losses with their loans. Mm. And they're on yeah. the front lines. They know better than anybody else what's happening in this economy. And you know, a similar line of work is credit the, the, the credit manager's index. Mm. And they're seeing their clients default. Wow. And not pay their bills. Yeah, and that's a train that really we haven't even seen leave the station because you know if you look at HYG or like uh, uh, bond ETFs, they've performed horribly, but almost all of that has been interest rate risk yields yep. rising rather than credit spreads widening. But that that could be a, a shooter drop. Danielle, uh, it, my final question for you is about private markets. You know, something like mm -hmm. HYG or S and P five hundred, we can see it go up and down every day, and it, it tells observers uh, what's going on in the markets. Private markets much more illiquid. You only get quoted on them once a month. So there's venture capital as well as private equity. Um, I know there's one Blackstone fund that is two Blackstone funds that are not allowing people to withdraw money from it, and. Uh, based on someone who we, we, we both know, I actually heard that up until recently, they said that they were up on the year, which is interesting given, you know, how publicly traded REITs are down 30 or 40%. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, how much, how, how, how what, what's the next shoe to drop in, in that space, private markets? So the other, the second Blackstone fund was a private credit fund. This is a $1.4 trillion industry that is 68% owned by U.S. public pensions. Um, Jay Powell's phone's blowing up. You just asked me the most important question out there, period, end of story. Jay Powell's phone's blowing up. He's being told by his old private, private equity buddies. Remember, he was the car, at the Carlisle Group. He's being told by his private equity buddies, you can't do this. You, this is not a road that you can afford to take. You cannot make us mark to market our holdings. 
the world will end. The non-bank financial system at the end of 2020, according to the World Bank, IMF, somebody, was $220 trillion in size, $40 trillion larger than the conventional banking system, which is $180 trillion. We cannot have these private holdings marked to market. It will be the end of the world as we know it. And it's never happened. You can go back 40 years, and the Fed has always pivoted in time to prevent having to mark these assets. If these assets are marked, the state of Illinois is going away, or at least it'll need a, bail, need a bailout. Some of these public yeah. pensions will simply blow up if private yeah. equity is forced, if private equity's hand is forced. I cannot imagine the sheer amount of phone call volume coming into Jay Powell's office, his former buddy saying, you cannot do this. Yes. State of Illinois physically will still be there. It will not melt into the sea, but in a financial sense, right. it, it might melt into the sea. Um, yeah, just so what what if Powell doesn't pivot though? You know, I actually I actually did you know was lucky enough to recently interview uh, David Rubenstein uh, of the Carlisle Group um, mm-hmm. who hi- hired Jay Powell, but um, he interestingly enough did say that he he thought you know he had no special insight into this, but he's his personal opinion was that you might see moderate moderate increases relative to expectations. So I don't know four point seven five percent five percent. He he didn't give a number, but um, I'm I'm just gonna go say that. But you know uh, Daniel, I remember. People, when Jay Powell first came in, they say, oh, he's a private equity guy. Private equity guys, they like low rates. So he's always a dove, right? But that, that sort of uh, prejudice was, was wrong so far. So just because he, he you know, spent a few years working in private equity doesn't mean that, that, that you know, he might not listen to his private equity friends. You know? and, and they have every reason to believe that he was going to listen to them again because you know, the Main Street lending facility that the Fed had during the, the pandemic – it was expanded to allow private equity holding companies to gain access to it. So it was clear that he, you know, he clear he listened to his friends then. So, you know, if, if he doesn't do, if, if breaking the Fed put will be most damaging to private capital markets, period, end of story. Hmm. And they're the wealthiest people on the, on the planet. Remember, after... Dodd-Frank, you had this massive brain drain out of the conventional banking system into private equity. They only did that because they're, they're following their own money. They're like, we're going to go wherever we can, we can get paid the most. Kristen Sinema, who just left the Democratic Party, you know, she was the one who stood in the way of private equity being taxed hmm. in the most recent legislation. You know what? Her biggest donor base is private equity. This is a, it is a protected political class in the U.S. economy. And Jay Powell has the power to shut it down or at least radically alter it. And that's what we're seeing right now. And again, you know, the Chinese sold a multifamily high rise in Los Angeles. You know, they had more than 700 million dollars into developing it. They had it on the market for 695 a few years ago. They sold it for 500 and took a massive loss. I'm sure that that scared the dickens out of every private investor on the planet. It's just like in housing. For mm-hmm. God's sake, don't sell anything. Then they're going to know that there's a value of it. We're going to we're going to have price discovery. Don't sell anything. Right? The Chinese developer didn't have much of a choice. Right. And private equity by itself is you know, I'm going to buy you know, the Demartino Booth family has a car dealership. I'm going to buy it. 
uh, put some debt into it, uh, improve it, and then sell it. You know, buy it at five times EV to EBITDA, sell it at ten times, whatever. Uh, mm-hmm. It's since then you know the private equity has grown so much. So a lot of private equity sort of overlaps with private credit, which you talked about, commercial backed real estate, which you talked about, uh, residential real estate as well. So these are these are not so much separate worlds. They're they're very much blended. They um, are. Yeah. Danielle, we'll, we'll have to leave it there, but thank you for being so generous um, with your time and insights. People can find you on Twitter at Demartino Booth, and they can uh, find more about Quill Intelligence at uh, quillintelligence.com. I also, Danielle, recommend your book, Fed Up. And the, I don't have a physical copy of it because I actually listened to it on audiobook where you listened to it yourself, where you read, read it yourself, which I actually, I really like listening to audiobooks when the, yeah, there we go. Um, so buy the book, but people should buy the book and do the audible, but I, uh, the audio book is really good. I, I do I like use audible. it to prop up my computer as you can see. So <laughs> there we go. There we go. Uh, well, well, Danielle, uh, it's been a pleasure and, uh, hope you have a, a great uh, holiday and new years and I'll, we'll see you in 2023. I, I look forward to it, Jack. Take care.